Welcome to Haunting History, the podcast that reaches back into the past for the events that shocked everyone. Tales of true crime, mystery, and the macabre. And when we're lucky, the stories were history and the people who lived it and the paranormal meet. Now who doesn't live a good ghost story, right? Welcome back to Haunting History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 2, Part 2 of the three-part series that we're doing, The Black Dahlia. I'm here with Tress. Hello. And Haley. Hi. Today, the day that we're publishing this episode, is the day that Elizabeth Short's body was found. So I want you to imagine yourself, if you're listening to this on the day that it publishes, imagine yourself living in Los Angeles in 1947. It was a chilly Wednesday morning. Betty Bessinger needed to pick up a pair of shoes from the shoe repair. She got herself and her three-year-old daughter ready to go. She walked down South Norton Avenue in Lamert Park. Halfway down the block, she noticed something in the overgrown lot. At first glance, and just at first glance, she thought it could be a store mannequin. It was clearly a leg and a foot, but it was so white. For that split second, she thought it wasn't real. She looked closer and was shocked to see that it was no store dummy. It was a body of a woman cut clean in half, imposed with her arm above her head and her legs spread open. Betty gathered her daughter and her wits and rushed down the street. Stopping at the first house she came to, she called the Los Angeles Police Department and then promptly disappeared. The call came in at 10.46 a.m. of a man down. Officers F.S. Perkins and W.E. Fitzgerald responded. And I'm going to let Tressa read um, directly from the LAPD file that I had gotten. Received a call, a man down on Norton between 39th Street and Coliseum in the middle of the block, west side in vacant lot. Upon arriving, we turned north on 39th Street. Onto Norton, we observed a nude woman's body lying face up approximately one foot west of the sidewalk in the vacant lot. Upon seeing the body, we immediately investigated. The immediate vicinity for signs of a car or persons, we could find no one on the block. Also, no cars were parked in that block at the time. After our investigation, we notified homicide detail and stood by until their arrival. In the meantime, newspapers started to show up in those days. Newspaper reporters, and you can't even imagine it now, but in those days they would listen to the police scanners. And once they heard like a news of a murder or a robbery or any kind of crime, they would rush to the area because police scanners weren't illegal back then and the newspapers would pay to have them. They're illegal now? You can't, well, like in our city, you can't listen to police scanners. I don't, it's not like that in every city, but in our city in particular, you can't listen to police scanners anymore. Like you can't be crime chasers or fire chasers. They're encrypted now. Like if you now. technically get caught doing it, like you get in trouble. The Pulse Point app The Pulse Point the app does. Fire, it does. But it has fire, fire but um, like you can't listen, like in those days, you can listen to fire. Yes, yeah. you can. In our city, you cannot listen to police scanners anymore. Oh. In their, those days, they would either hang out at the front desk where... Um, calls would come in via radio. Police uh, reporters would actually hang out in the police station. There were reporters that were assigned to the different jails, to the different police departments, and they would hang around and listen for the calls. And then if it sounded like a good call, like they would go for it. They my, would go rushing to the my scene. My best friend's mom always had a police scanner on her. Like she had a portable one. Why though? I don't know. See, I'm. She knew everything about everybody that was going on in our small little town. I would be fascinated. Like you. And, would, there are towns, I'm sure, people go to the bar with her police scanner. Really? <laughs> See, I bet you there's people that could email us and that um, their towns, you can listen to police scanners. In our town in particular, you, they're encrypted, so you mm-hmm. can't listen. But back in those days, the newspapers would pay to either have um, scanners in their offices or they would send reporters to hang out at the police station. Uh, I, unfortunately, the first photos of the crime scene were not police photos. They were newspaper cameraman photos. Um, soon the street was full of police and reporters. And now this part is the part that we get into a little bit of detail. When I say a little bit of detail, I mean graphic detail about her death and her body. So this is a disclaimer. If you have little ears around or you listen in your car where you're commuting, your kids are in your car, this is not the episode to let them listen in on. As much as we don't want to read this information, it's important to know the level of, the level of abuse that Elizabeth endured. They don't know how much happened prior to her death, and since there's no absolute certain knowledge of where she was, although some claim to have seen her, from January 9th to the 15th, she may have been with her murderer all those days. I'm going to let Haley read to you directly from the LAPD file. The body was laying on its back, head to the north, feet to the south, on the west side of Norton Avenue, approximately two feet west of the sidewalk. The body had been cleanly severed at the midline, and the lower half was laying about one foot to the south of the upper half. 
Both parts of the body were laying absolutely flat, with protruding entrails of the lower half lying underneath the buttocks. There was marked post-mortem lividity on the top side of both parts, indicating that the deceased had lain on her front side or face for some period of time immediately following death. The body was comparatively free of blood smears or stains, clearly indicated that it had been washed off sometime after the death. There were several fibers, some of which were recovered and turned over to Mr. Pinker, which appeared to be bristles from a stiff brush in which were adhered to the body, particularly the pubic region and points of mutilation, all of which included severe lacerations on the forehead, and which appeared to have been inflicted with a blunt instrument. Lacerated left breast, lacerated right breast, and the top of which appeared to have been removed. The area covered by pubic hair was slashed in a crisscross pattern, and the scarcity of hair gave rise to the opinion that it had been cut off rather close to the skin. Note, it was determined later that it had been pulled out by hand. There was also a tic-tac-toe slashing on the right hip. The mouth was badly slashed approximately three inches each way from the corners and the upper lip, was deeply lacerated on the right-hand side. There were strangulation marks on the neck and definite rope or tie marks on both lower legs and arms. There's so much anger directed at her body. Yeah, in the first part that of the episode that was last week, you had said that you suspect that it was just like she just ran into the wrong person. Right. But I feel like that's like so brutal. Don't they usually say like brutal crimes like that is like a crime of like a passion, passion. Like, well, no, I her. meant and like also like a someone that kills like that. I feel like one has to have experience in a body. Well, and that we get to that that's surgical experience. Clearly, but like Haley watches also, true crime. But like also that's like so brutal. Like, why wouldn't they do that again? Like, why wouldn't they find, if it was, they just randomly found a person Well, to when I said that she ran into the wrong person, I meant that she ran into the, I didn't mean it wasn't, it, I didn't mean to imply that it wasn't something like she knew. Person. Yeah, I wasn't saying that it was a random person. I was saying that she ran into someone, um, the wrong person, to be alone. Because there's so much anger. I mean, he not only. Like, that's a, that's like you kill someone because you've planned to or you have some kind of like obsession with them right and they say that um okay so clearly she was cut in half cut in half and her blood was drained from her body that happened after death what they don't know the things that they don't know if they happened before death or after death was the slash marks and what it was was and i'm going to show you guys pictures and i refuse to put these pictures on our website i'm not going to put them on there they're too grotesque they're the and it, I want to reiterate the only reason that we are reading and we're not reading from the website. We're reading directly from the LAPD file. The only reason that we are telling you exactly what happened to her body. And we are the reason that we're discussing it is because first of all, I, I want to make her human again. She's not just mo- some moniker of the black Dahlia. She was a human body. She was a person. And secondly, I think it's important to know the anger involved in what they did to her. This wasn't, I don't feel like it was someone who didn't know her. I feel like it was someone who was just pissed off and angry at her and maybe rebuked by her. They don't know some of the things that they don't know if it happened before she was alive, before she died was the slash marks um, on her face is they, um, the murderer cut her from the corner of her lip to almost her ear on both sides. Almost. That's one of the few things that I did know about this case is that, First of all, the only pictures I ever knew of her were of her dead body. Oh, really? Yeah, that's why I didn't know what she actually looked like. But I also, one of the only things I did know is that people said that her face was cut in a smile. In a smile. And I yeah. think it's called, um, I think there's a name for it now. There's like people refer to it as like the Joker. Th- something to do with the Joker. I don't know what it is. Because the Joker. Was like was, that big smile. From, yeah. The they also don't know if her, her breast was removed while she was alive. Uh, her tattoo was cut. She has a tattoo. She had a rose tattoo on her leg. Um, it was cut out. They don't know if that happened when she was alive or after she had died. They don't know. They believe um, that the pubic hair was not, it wasn't shaved off. They know that. They feel like it was pulled out by hand. And um, we don't know if that was while she was alive. We don't know if um, the crisscross they did, like a, there was a tic-tac-toe or do you say slashing on her right hip, which they believe could have happened while she was still alive. 
the crisscross pattern um, on her pubic area. It was they they believe that could have happened while she was still alive. Did you get a lot of roadblocks trying to get the reports from the police? No, no. It was and anybody can request them. It's not that hard to get the the LAPD reports. The thing is, it's not the full report, and I'll tell you why later. But they did what they do release is is really fascinating. It's kind of you get kind of geeky if you're like me and you love mysteries and you love reading like police files and things like that. It's it uh, it starts with all the pictures that were in her that they found after her death. In her personal pictures? Her personal photographs, okay. yeah. So it's just kind of a trip to look at, even though you're looking at a Xerox copy of everything. It's really easy to imagine yourself investigating the crime and kind of seeing it the way the police officer saw it. The police report um, says that upon the removal of the body by the coroner's deputies, it was found that the grass underneath the body was still wet with dew, indicating that the body had been placed sometime after the dew fell in the early morning hours. It, someone went deeper into that. Um, I guess the dew starts around 2 a.m. So her body had to have been dropped. Are you nodding your head because you know that from something? I don't know from just from living my life. Like, you know that... It starts d- getting wet outside. I, I All your time hanging out in parks <laughs> and you're not supposed to? No. I didn't want to say, like, it's because... How often have you been outside at 2 a.m.? I come home from, like, the bars or whatever and walk across the grass to get in my house. I know that it's wet. Like, yeah. I don't it's know. after 2 a.m. Apparently it's after 2 a.m. So... Um, and it, what time did they find her body? It was like around 10 o'clock was when Betty Bersinger called in. So sometime between, oh, it, that's a relatively small window, 8 a.m., I mean, 8 hours, 2 a.m. to 10 a.m. It's not that small of a window. It's half a day. That's you a, think about it's daytime. an eight-hour shift. <laughs> yeah, work. it is, but <laughs> I can get a lot of things uh, done. In eight hours. In I don't know. It just When you're not talking to me. But they can't. Oh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't distract you. <laughs> unless it's about the podcast then it may be a deal um, the medical examiner ex- surmised that the extent of bruising spread over her a wide area of the body that she had been severely beaten again they don't know there was no evidence of a sexual assault because the killer had washed and scrubbed the body clean and when they say that there was other reports that I had read that there was a dilation of her anal region but when they say that there was no evidence of sexual assault because the killer had washed and scrubbed her body clean they mean there was no evidence. There was no, um, the, because the body was scrubbed and it was scrubbed with gasoline, hmm. which comes, becomes important later. The autopsy of Short's body was performed um, the next day on January 16th, 1947 by Dr. Frederick Newbar, the Los Angeles County coroner. Newbar's autopsy report stated that Short was five feet, five inches tall, weighed 115 pounds. She was skinny. And had light blue eyes, brown hair, and badly decayed teeth. There were literature marks on her ankles, wrist, and neck, and an irregular laceration with a superficial tissue lust on her right breast. Newbar also noted superficial lacerations on her right forearm. Wait, like tissue loss? Is that oh, what they, you said? He cut her breast off. Oh, okay. That's, I wasn't sure. If that's Just what one you of said. them. Yeah. This is their literature. Let's see. On her right breast. Um, yeah, they the one of her breasts were cut off, and I and I wanted to show you guys a picture. You said you'd seen the pictures. I haven't seen besides her face. I haven't seen any autopsy. Oh my god! And and again, I I'm not I'm not putting this on our website. I refuse to put this on our website. What I I've will do though this. is link the pictures. You can go look for them yourself. It's really not difficult. I'll put a link on the website um, episode page. But really, all you have to do is um, Google Elizabeth Short or the Black Dahlia um, murder scene, crime scene photos, and they will pop up. There's actual. These are not actual police photos. These are from. A lot of them are from the first ones. I don't know which ones are the first ones. Did they publish these pictures in the newspaper? No. Okay. No, but they would publish. um, There's there's one. You'll find one if you keep scrolling. There's one where the blanket is over her body. which that they would they would post that they wouldn't post the but her head is still showing yeah they and they would post there's some um the morgue photos the one photo of just her face is a morgue photo and there's a a museum in la museum of death claims to have the original uh morgue photos but they're actually online you can find them online but it's graphic. I can't. I cannot warn you enough. If you cannot 
I, I have to, before I can even look at them, I have to sort of disassociate myself. Because it's hard to imagine that's a human body. Mm-hmm. The level of mutilation is you extreme. You can see the injury on her leg. I mean, you can see where they cut out the rose tattoo even. Can you I see that? feel like it's one of the most graphic pictures of any crime scene I've ever seen. Well, because it's the most famous. It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean that it's... There's a police officer who said there were more heinous crimes that committed in L.A. We alone in 1947 them. than the Black Dahlia murder. Uh, this, again, became a famous case for whatever reason. This one was picked up, maybe because it was unsolved, maybe because it was in Lamert Park, and I don't know, it was the association close to Hollywood, the fact that she was 22. I don't know what made this case take off the way that it did. But it is... The photos are, I, I can't stress it enough. Just really, Tress is still looking at them. And I can't believe you've never seen them before. I've only seen that face, um, the face shot. Oh, you, that's, that's crazy. There's so many more. Well, there's even a t-shirt made of her face. That's ridiculous. That's horrifying. That's creepy. And the way she was posed, did you, did you stop for a second? I mean, the, the grotesqueness of it. But the way that she was posed was, they, the, he took the time to pose her. He put her hands over her head. Yeah. Like he didn't just dump a body. He didn't just dump a body. He he put her hands over her head and sort of like, I give up. Like, I can't fight back. And then spread her legs the way that he did. He, did, he didn't just stop her. He was angry at her. That's, I mean, they talk often about the fact that Haley said, because she's our little crime girl, that it had to have been someone who had anatomy experience because her body was severed in a way that between the lumbars between like between her spine in. Yeah. So that it was a clean cut. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't know how to do that. So that's why I have to assume that it's someone who understands that, but I don't know. It just seems so like detailed and like it wasn't, it was someone who knew her. It was someone who was mad at her. It wasn't just someone who was mad at women. Yeah, that's I what I mean. Like, I feel like for something that's like that brutal, like that would be like serial killer. Like, why wouldn't he do that again? Like, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel was like it was that was something that was yeah. specifically towards her. The Homicide Bureau speculated Elizabeth had been tied up, and this is really sick too, had been tied up, spread eagle, either in a standing or suspended head first by a makeshift system of ropes and pulleys. Now, I find that, very specific. Why did the police department, like the Homicide Bureau, I'm going to read that again, believe that Elizabeth had been tied up, spread eagled, either in a standing or suspended, head first by a makeshift system of ropes and pulleys. There had to have been marks on her body and blood. That's so specific that you could have just been tied to a bed. But if they're saying, they're saying that her head was down. Right. Right. That's what it seems There's like to me. Probably the blood, blood pooling. pooling in her head that you can see. That's not, you can actually find the autopsy online. It doesn't say that, though. That's what I'm saying. I feel like the police. N- I mean, I know the police know more than what we know. Obviously, they they do know that she was kept bound in this position for an unknown amount of time before and after death. The literature marks on her wrist and ankles and impressions made by rope were indented on the front, back, and left side of her neck. And this is. Do you know how she died? Do you have any idea how she died? No, like what actually killed her? What actually killed her? No. What do you think actually killed her? What do you think? I feel like loss of... Well, we, we don't know if all that crazy stuff happened before or after she died, right? Well, no, she was cut after. She was she cut died. after. Right, but... But a body yeah. can be drained without being cut in half. I mean, they do it all the time. So in is that autopsy. how she died? No, I'm asking you. What, <laughs> what do you think? I don't know. Do you have any... No, I don't know. It's kind of shocking, actually. Scared? Or no, fear? it was... No. <laughs> Kind of, yes, actually. Breathing? The cause of death was listed as blunt force trauma to the head and hemorrhaging and shock. Hmm. So she died. She may have died just of shock. I mean, she was blunt force trauma too, but they say that um, she was bleeding, that she bled a lot. And I mean, this is where I go back to her tattoo being cut out before she was dead. Her, and I and I believe the tattoo was cut out to um, make it so her body wasn't identifiable. What? The, Is it a tattoo then? 
The tattoo would have been identifiable. I know, but it would have I'm just made it easier like, to figure out who she this was. This was 1947. It was not normal to have a tattoo. No. Women didn't have tattoos. No, not very many. Which no, gives they you, didn't. I know this one give you, it gives you another idea of what, who she was. She was sort of a wild. Yeah, that she may have been more wild. A knife was used to cut open her cheeks from each corner of her mouth, leaving a gaping injury from ear to ear. She was then cut in half the waist, and her body was drained of blood. Was and the they don't know that if it's before or after facial cuts? They don't know that. They don't know if her facial cuts were before or after. It was determined that the murderer must have had knowledge in the medical field, as the body was severed in such a way that they must know anatomy. The body had been cut completely in half by a technique taught in the 1930s called a hemicorpectomy. And I had to use Google to figure out how to pronounce that, and I may still not be pronouncing it correctly, but I tried. The lower half of her body had been removed by transecting the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae, thus severing the intestine at the duodenum. Newbar's report noted very little bruising along the incision line, suggesting that it had been performed after death. Thank God. The cause of death was determined to be hemorrhaging from the lacerations to her face and the shock from blows on her head and face. From the police report again, immediately after the arrival at the county morgue, police photographs were made of the body and fingerprints were taken and a search of our records failed to establish identification and a dead body report was made under the name Jane Doe number one, which I'm assuming it was to mean that she was the first Jane Doe of 1947. Maybe. Yeah. In large photographs of the victim's fingerprints were wire photoed on what was pretty much the first fax machine. It was a sound X to Washington, D.C. The victim was positively identified as one Elizabeth Short, Santa Barbara Police number 11419. She had been booked by the Santa Barbara Police Department September 1943 for 700 KWIC, which was minor drinking in public place. I wonder how long it took them to identify her. It was super fast, believe it or not. That's crazy. No, it was crazy. Fast for fast for sure for 1947. But the thing was, and this is what I found in the FBI files. Now, this wasn't in the police files. This was in the FBI files. One of the newspapers are the ones that helped with this Soundex machine. The Soundex machine was um, the precursor to the fax machine. And I guess one of her papers owned it. So they were telling the police that they should get, if they helped them send the fingerprints to Washington, to the FBI, that they should get first dibs on any scoops in the story. The newspaper, the Hearst, the Hearst paper, um, which was, I think, the Herald, Herald Examiner. They, the newspapers, they were like gangs. Like they fought each other for the scoops. Like it's not now. I mean, now Joe Blow and Facebook can get put a live video and undermine the news media outlets mm-hmm. now. Back then, the papers had to fight tooth and nail to get the scoop on any story. And apparently it was one of the newspapers that had helped with the Soundex machine to literally what we would call fax the fingerprints. And um, the fingerprints, for some reason, they got good fingerprints off her. They had to be enlarged. But um, she was identified within, I want to say, I wrote it down somewhere, uh, 56 minutes once... Once they sent the fingerprints over, she was identified within like 56 minutes. Because, How? Because they didn't have a computer system to run the prints through. Like and it, they had to they had them big manu- like magnifying glass and I know. compare. But for whatever reason... Um, they had to have had an idea who she was. Maybe. I don't know. They found out really quickly and it was because her fingerprints were taken twice. Once in Santa Barbara in 1943... And once at when she tried to get the job at Camp Cook, she had to be fingerprinted to get that job. So her body was identified almost immediately. And from the time that they sent her to Washington via what would be ultimately known the fa- become known as a fax machine. But it wasn't released to the public for a day and a half. The police report says this, Mrs. Phoebe Short, Elizabeth's mother. Now, this is what the police report says, but I found out different. The police report says that Mrs. Phoebe Short, Elizabeth's mother, was contacted by the Medford police and advised of her daughter's death. Now, this is actually a typed, written page by one of the detectives. And I, I got his name. I'll have his name later on, and I'll tell you who he is. L.H.L. Hansen is the one who typed this report. He just very matter-of-factly states that Phoebe's mo- Phoebe Short, Elizabeth's mother, was contacted by the Medford police and advised of her daughter's death. She communicated with the department and advised that she was leaving immediately for Los Angeles. Once she had been identified, the search for the next of kin. Now, this is what really happened. 
And I told you how the, the Hearst newspapers were trying to convince the LAPD that they should have the scoop on the story because they helped find the fingerprints. Because the Hearst are evil. This is horrifying. This is what the newspapers did. The newspaper, a newspaper man was the first to contact Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe. Under orders from his boss, the reporter, his name was Wayne Sutton, called Phoebe up. He lied to her and told her that he was calling to tell her that her daughter had won a beauty contest. And the reason that he did that is that he knew that if he would have called her and said, hey, your daughter's dead, she would lose her mind and not be able to communicate. Because he told her that he was calling to tell her that her daughter won a beauty contest, she was excited. She told him all kinds of stories about Elizabeth that probably wouldn't have come out later. She, he gave her, she gave him all kinds of scoops on the story, um, on her life back in Medford. I mean, who knows if they were true or not? I mean, she might've been just so excited that, I mean, she wasn't going to say anything bad about her daughter anyways, but, um, he pumped her for any information she was willing to give. Once he got all the information he could, he broke it to her that he had actually been calling to tell her that her daughter had been murdered. The paper that he worked for offered to pay for Phoebe to come to Los Angeles, but not because of what he had just done to her, but because they could control who and if anyone spoke to Phoebe. They kind of did it to like keep her under the wraps. Their control. Yeah. And so I'm going back to the police report saying that Mrs. Phoebe Short was contacted by the Medford Police Department. When he told Phoebe that her daughter was murdered, she lost her shit like any mother would and didn't believe him anymore. She thought the whole phone call was a prank. She didn't believe that her daughter was murdered. So they had to contact the Medford police to go to her door and knock on her door and tell her that her daughter was dead. Wow. How effed up is that? Yeah, that's super messed up. That's poor mom. In the police file, again, written by Detective H.L. Hansen, through an anonymous telephone, because this is where it gets really sad again, Anonymous phone call. The victim's father, Cleo Short, was located and inter- interviewed by Sergeant Hansen, or Detective Hansen, at 1020 South Kingsley Drive, apartment 301. He stated, in effect, that the victim, Elizabeth Short, had left Mes- Ma- Medford, Massachusetts sometime during the latter part of 1942, which we already knew, after he had sent her $200, which we already knew, and came out to Vallejo, California, where he was working in the Navy Yards. He was agreed between the two of them that she would cook his meals and keep house for him, but that because of her habit of running around and keeping late hours, he told her to leave after about three weeks. He stated he had not seen her or heard from her since that time. He was very intoxicated at the time of the interview and belligerent as well. He said he did not care if she was murdered and that he wanted nothing to do with the case. As a matter of fact, he even refused to appear at the coroner's office and identify the body. Wow, father of the freaking century. And this is written by a hardened detective. And he, he, he says, he types out this report like he had to write it. Mm-hmm. He said he did not care if she was murdered and he wanted nothing to do with the case. As a matter of fact, he even refused to appear at the coroner's office and identify the body. Was he heavily investigated or no? No, I mean, the police treated everybody like a suspect, so he was at least... His alibis were at least checked, but no, he wasn't. He wasn't considered a suspect. I just, I, I just think it's so telling when you're reading something. I mean, it's, it's so, I'm so capable of going back, and I'm, and I'm reading this report that was written 72 years ago, and this hardened detective who's seen murders, you know, for the whole time he was a detective and a police officer, and he writes that as a matter of fact, like his wording, as a matter of fact, he even refused to appear at the coroner's office to identify the body. I feel like the detective was just as shocked as I am reading it now, and you guys hearing it now, that a father would be so... Cold. Cold. And and here's the thing, too. I'm sure that the newspapers... I'm sure he knew his daughter was dead before they found him. I'm sure her name and her picture was all over the paper before he even... I don't think... I don't think that the detective surprised him with the news because no. of the way that it was back then. I'm sure that, and they couldn't find the father. It was an anonymous telephone call that said where the father was. So they finally got to the father, except, except for the fact that they're still asking him to identify the body, but um, the I mom would have been on her way. You still have to always have a physical identification. They had already said that the mother was on her way to identify the body. So maybe they wanted more than one person or it was going to take her time. It's not like flights 
today, 1947, the flights aren't today. Like her immediate arrival in LA wasn't going to be immediate. I mean, she found out on a Thursday morning or whatever, Thursday or Friday morning, she may not have been able to fly out till the following Wednesday. Do you know what I'm saying? So the, I don't want to judge the dad. I don't want to judge Cleo short. Why? Because who knows if he was drunk because he had read the paper. He found out his daughter was murdered in he the most. He wasn't a good guy. He was he not a good guy? He faked his death. I mean, clearly he was an he asshole. He left his That's children. True. He did. You're right. He, he did. But he also sent her $200 to do what she wanted so? with. I mean, I don't know. And he did ask Phoebe to take him back. I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't know. I picture, I don't know why I picture all these things, but who knows? Maybe he saw in the paper that his daughter was brutally murdered and he didn't save her. If anything, he, he sent her to the money to come to California all the time. And, but he shouldn't. Him Not saying care. that he doesn't care if she was he murdered did say he didn't care if shows she was murdered. that he was just a big fat douche. Well, the fa- the weird thing is, I mean, he says that he doesn't want to, he wants nothing to do with the case. And earlier, when I had said that Betty Bissinger, uh, Bersinger, called the police to, to notify them of the body in the in the vacant and then lot, she left. and she promptly disappeared. She promptly disappeared. It took them a week to find her. They didn't know who called in, and it took them a find to a week to find who had called in. And the reason that she disappeared was because she didn't want to do, she, the case was so immediately sensationalized. Well, she didn't want anything then, to do with that everybody either. everybody minded their own business. And, and she didn't want anything to do with it either. She wanted nothing to do with the case or the sensationalization of it or the newspaper articles or people camped out on her front yard. She didn't want that either. So, I mean, the fact that he says I want anything to do with the case, I, I understand that. The police released a daily police bulletin to other officers titled Wanted Information on Elizabeth Short between the dates of January 9th and January 15th, 1947. It went on to read, description, female, American, twi- American, 22 years old, 5 feet 6 inches, 118 pounds, which is a little different than the coroner's report, which, who knows. Black hair, green eyes instead of blue. Very attractive, bad lower teeth, fingernails chewed to the quick. The subject brutally murdered, body severed, and mutilated on January 15th, 1947 at 39th and Norton. Subject on whom information wanted last seen January 9th when she got out of a car at the Biltmore Hotel at the time she was wearing a black suit, no collar, on coat, probably cardigan style, fluffy white blouse, black suede high-heeled shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, full-length beige coat, and ca- which ends up ended up being Ann Toth's coat, by the way. Carried a black plastic handbag, 12 by 8, which she had a black address book. Subject readily makes friends with both sexes and frequenting cocktail bars and night spots. On leaving the car, she went into the lobby of the Biltmore and was last seen there. Inquiry should be made at all hotels, motels, apartment houses, cocktail bars, lounges, and nightclubs to ascertain whereabouts of the victim between the dates mentioned. In conversation, subject readily identified herself as Elizabeth or Beth Short, and that was signed kindly C.B. Horrell, Chief of Police, Los Angeles, California. Um, once the identification was made, of Elizabeth's last days were quickly determined. As you can imagine, the first person they wanted to talk to was a man named Robert Red Manley. He was a gentleman who was seen dropping her off at the Biltmore Hotel, and he was identified by Dorothy French as the man who had picked up Elizabeth in San Diego. He was the first and only serious suspect in the first days of the discovery of her body. Manley was detained on January 20th, 1947, and we'll get more into him later. But during an interview, the married man told how he'd initially picked Elizabeth up on a San Diego street corner, how they'd spent an erotically uneventful night in a motel, and how he had dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel in January. Unerotically. Unerotically? Erotically uneventful. What the heck is that? They didn't have sex. But what's erotic about it? So he's saying erotically uneventful. He's saying that it was uneventful. Night in the motel and how he had eventually dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel on January 9th. He finished with, I'll never pick up another dame as long as I live. Manley was soon set free for his solid alibi for January 14th and 15th and for passing two lie detector tests. The interesting thing is that he says he picked her up in a corner in San Diego, sort of implying that she was hanging on street corners picking up men. Now, he was not a military man. He was a salesman. So, like, the whole idea of her being, like, interested in just military men just, just went out the window. She needed a Well, she had to get out of the French's house because they were over her. And she had to, um, she wanted to get back to L.A. Um, Dorothy, whom Elizabeth was staying with in San Diego, was one, the one who gave the police his name. 
and he found out about the police looking for him in the paper while in San Francisco. The, the newspaper again found him rather than, or rather his wife actually, before the police. They showed up at her apartment and began speaking to the wife first. She stood by her man throughout the questioning and the media frenzy that followed. Now, she was really pretty too. And I'm going to put their picture. I'm going to have to include a picture of Robert Manley or Robert Red Manley. Um, his wife was really pretty and she was pregnant apparently. And she stood by her man. She knew that he spent the night in the hotel with, he admitted it. He says they didn't have sex, but he did pick her up on a street corner and she stood by her man. Um, okay. You know how we were talking about earlier, how you went to school with, um, Ethan? Yes. And that he was related. Now, this is the thing that trips me out. The, First suspect in the case was this Robert Red Manley. And we don't talk about him again. Um, our next episode is going to be on suspects. And we don't talk about Red Manley again because he was set free for it. He had a solid alibi. He was not in LA. He was in San Francisco. He was with working. He was with multiple, multiple people and he passed two lie detector tests. And quite frankly, the police just didn't hold him. Did he? It wasn't in him to do what happened to Elizabeth. This is a trippy thing about Manly, and it, it, it's not like the connection that Ethan had to you going to school with. But Manly had um, previously been discharged from the Army for a mental disability. He had suffered from a nervous breakdowns and had supposedly had been struggling with auditory hallucinations where he was hearing voices, which is what, I mean, it could be anything really. His wife eventually had him committed to Patton State Hospital in 1954, where he died in 1986 from an accidental fall. And this is what trips me out, is that I did not know that, first of all, Patton State Hospital is 15 miles from us. Yeah. I did not know that Patton State Hospital existed until just a couple months before we started talking about doing this story. And I, I, I know it's not, it's not the serendipity of like Ethan going to school with you or anything, but when I read that, I was like, the first suspect in the case is, died like was committed and died at a place 15 miles from our house yeah and it's a place that i had just learned about because of work because i had actually had gone to Patton state hospital um for a work assignment and i was so tripped out by the place because it's it's so old and it looks incredibly haunted and you're not allowed to take pictures there which i did not take pictures you're not allowed to take pictures there. And it's, cr- it's creepy as hell. And it just kind of tripped me out that I just like the little serendipity, like little things that have happened while invest, well, doing all this research on this case is like the connections to home, like even to you that Patton State Hospital is just a place very recently that I became fascinated with and did research on because I had been there. And then I found out the first suspect in the case was sent there. I don't know. I need it's, either. It's not. It's not the same thing as Ethan, but yeah. I mean, what were you going to say about Ed Manley? Since we're not, we're not going to talk about him in the next no, episode. No, we're not going to talk about him in the next episode. So, um, in the Childhood Shadows book, they talk about him, and he was only twenty four at the time. He was young. Um, he just had a newborn baby at the time of the murder, and then his behavior after the murder, he was periodically confinement to mental hospitals in the 1970s he threatened an individual with an axe when the individual asked how suspect was connected to the murder suspect diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic in 1954 he um it haunted him for the rest of his life like you can even see in the pictures of red manly and I'll, i'll put those on our website he is completely haunted by the fact that he was the last person to see elizabeth live and I don't know why. I mean, maybe he was in love with her. Maybe he did really like her. Or maybe it's just, I mean, we can't comprehend the level of publicity of this case, the frenzy that was, he was arrested. He was put through lie detectors test. His background was researched. He was put on trial. He had to, um, he had to appear at the inquest. So like, he clearly wasn't mentally strong enough to was handle this all that. First highly publicized case in the United States? They, I don't know. I don't know what the first really big case was. I mean, I don't, I guess probably the murder of William Desmond Taylor was before this. The death of Valentino. I know. We need to do an episode. That's a, he was a silent movie star. Uh, or no, he wasn't a silent movie star, but a silent movie star was involved in that murder case. That's why I don't know about it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the media was, the newspapers and media and radio and stuff was just huge back then. So, and people didn't know how to deal with it. I mean, I don't think people know how to deal with it now. 
if you were just instantly thrown into a case and berate and people are following you and camped out in front of your apartment and I mean, I, it just, I can just, totally see how it would mess with you. Yeah. It, I don't, regardless of you being they say that, or not. Yeah. And he clearly was not mentally strong to begin with. And he was, uh, it, it affected him for the rest of his life. Yeah. For sure. We're going to get back to the story now. On January 16th, 1947, witnesses Ann Toth and Mark Hansen appeared voluntarily at the homicide division's office and volunteered information as to when they first met and last saw Elizabeth Short. Ann Toth stated that she had met the victim sometime in August. And being impressed with her story of not having a place to stay, invited her to a room with her, which was the home of Mark Hansen, which is a different story that someone else had said. She, someone else had said that Marjorie, her friend from Boston, and her admit the musician who took him to Mark Hansen's. So who knows which story is true? Um, she stayed approximately three weeks and left, returning later for a period of two or three days and left for San Diego. At the time of the report, both Anne and Mark Hansen were being investigated further in checking numerous names and addresses which were found in the ad- in an address book, which had been mailed, among other things, to the LA Examiner. And I'm going to get into that later. Uh, they interviewed Rudolfo Walther, who stayed... Now, this is all from the police report. Um, they interviewed Rudolfo Walther, who stated that he had been referred to Elizabeth Short by Murray Lerner, that he had called her three or four times over a period of a week, attempting to make an appointment, but without success. Okay, now, the police wrote this, like, paragraph form, but it feel it felt like they were trying to make a point of how many men she had contact with. The report went on to say that um, they interviewed Murray Lerner, who stated that he had met Short at the home of Mark Hansen, had only seen her once, and had suggested in a telephone conversation to Mr. Wilder that there was a nice-looking girl staying at the Hansen's house and that he should call her up. He claimed that he had only seen her once in his life. Upon checking Michael Anthony Otoro, whose name is found in the um, victim's address book, they were informed that he had not, that he had met her on Hollywood Boulevard and had taken her to dinner three or four times and driven her home. He stated that she had borrowed $5 from him on two different occasions and never repaid it. He said the last time he saw her was in Hollywood and Vine, on Hollywood and Vine, sometimes during the first part of December. They also interviewed Maurice Clement, whose name appeared in her address book, who stated that he had met her about December 1st in Brittingham's restaurant on Sunset Boulevard at which time she was broke and he paid for her dinner check. He stated that he saw her possibly five or six times between the 1st and the 8th of December. Um, from notes and photographs found in the victim's personal belongings, we learned that her she was associated with one Marjorie Graham and Gordon Feckling. So that's the police report of them investigating people They're from investigating her address book. From her address book, yeah. Didn't they say when, when she was last seen, she had her address book with her? It was in a person. I'm going to get to how they got that. I, I was, it kind of gets a little bit out of, um, order here. And the reason why is because I, I wanted you, I wanted you to understand the police probably did not have a high opinion of her. Um, they wrote about, like, it's literally one man after another, mm-hmm. one man after another. So they, they, they had their opinions of her and I, I couldn't fit this anywhere else and that's why I kind of went through it, but I wanted to make a point that the police report, the man typing the report was saying how they interviewed this man, interviewed this man, interviewed this man. And all of them said the same thing. Took her out to dinner, lent her money, dropped her back off, picked her up on the corner, picked her up on the corner. Like a lot of them are saying that they picked her up on the corner. And so I wanted to make a point. The police had their opinion of who Elizabeth was. By what they were seeing. By what they were during the investigation. On January 21st, 1947, a person claiming to be the killer placed a phone call to the office of James Richardson, the editor of the Los Angeles Examiner, congratulating Richardson on the newspaper's coverage of the case and stated that he planned on eventually turning himself in, but not before allowing the police to pursue him further. Additionally, the caller told Richardson to expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. Now, he referred to her as Beth. And this was an anonymous caller. Yeah, I, that's weird. I wrote that and I just, that just hit me. That's why I keep saying it's someone who knew her. Or it was just someone who was pranking. I don't it, know. Just to like be involved. Like people do that now. Like just have some involvement and I'm using air quotes. They like, make no, they, but he really did send it. So um, oh. on January 22nd, 1947, an inquest was held at which time Mrs. Phoebe Short testified to the identification of the victim. Lieutenant Haskins testified to finding the body. Robert Red Manley testified to bringing the victim from San Diego to Los Angeles 
and leaving her at the Biltmore Hotel approximately 6.30 p.m. on 1-9-1947. H.L. Hansen testified to the progress of the investigation, and Dr. Newbar, the coroner, testified to the cause of death. The coroner's jury's ver- verdict was that of homicide by an unknown person or persons recommending every effort to be made to apprehend the perpetrators. As of this date, February 5th, 1947, we have received hundreds of telephone calls and letters offering information and possible solutions, all of which are being checked as they are received. A complete file of this information is being maintained and will be available for future reference. Little did they know from my future reference 72 years later. At the time of this report, there is no definite suspect, signed H.L. Hansen. An anonymous tip was then received by the Herald Express, saying that Elizabeth had kept photo albums of herself and her friends in a trunk. The trunk had gone missing during shipment from Chicago to Los Angeles. However, the Herald Express had determined was determined to relocate it. They found it at the Greyhound Express station in downtown Los Angeles. They would finally be able to illustrate Elizabeth Short's story with photos of herself and her friends and her lovers. Then on January 24th, a manila envelope was discovered by a U.S. Postal Service worker. The envelope had been addressed to Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers. That's in quotes. With individual words that had been cut and pasted from newspaper clippings. Okay, this is super creepy and I'm going to have this on our episode page too. Also, in a large message on the face of the envelope read, Here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. The envelope had short birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on a piece of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. The packet had been carefully cleaned with gasoline, similar to Short's body. So the police 100% believe that this packet was mailed by the murderer because it was killed. It was, they had kept that from the public that the body was cleaned with gasoline. And um, then the letter arrived cleaned with the gasoline also. This information was not released to the public, which is why they received, when they received the letter also cleaned with gasoline, they believed it was in fact sent from the killer. Despite the efforts to clean the packet, several partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI for testing, but the fingerprints were compromised in transit and could not be properly analyzed. No one explains, and I've looked everywhere, what that means, compromised in transit, like what happened to it. It could have maybe the receptionist at the FBI opened the envelope and touched it. I don't know. The same day the packet was received by the examiner, a handbag and a black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley a short distance from Norton Avenue, only two miles from the where the body was found. The items were recovered by the police, and they were um, also wiped clean with gasoline, destroying any fingerprints. Red Manley identified the purse in the shoe that it did in fact belong to Elizabeth Short. The Los Angeles Police Department interviewed over 150 men in the ensuing weeks whom they believed to be potential suspects. They also requested a list of all the medical students at the University of Los Angeles, again, believing that the killer had to have medical training. They painstakingly went through the list one by one to eliminate suspects. Police also interviewed several persons found listed in Hansen's address book by that thing that I had read earlier, including Martin Lewis, who was another one, who had been an acquaintance of Short's. Lewis was able to provide an alibi for the date of Short's murder, as he was in Portland, Oregon, visiting a father-in-law. A total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case during its initial stages, including 400 sheriff deputies and 250 California State Patrol officers. Various locations were searched for potential evidence, including storm drains throughout Los Angeles, abandoned structures, and various sites along the Los Angeles River. But the searches yielded no further evidence. Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000, which is equivalent to about 110000 now, reward for information leading to police to the Shorts killer. The problem is after the announcement of the award, reward, um, so many people came back forward confessing, and most of which the police dismissed as false. Several of the false confessors were charged with obstruction of justice. Why would a reward make people confess? They wouldn't be able to keep the money if they were in jail. I know they're not thinking straight. I mean, if you're going to, you're going to convince, you're going to confess to a a brutal murder. You're not that smart anyway. Yeah. You're not really thinking straight. The, um, what I had read too, is there's also a woman who confessed to murdering her. I was thinking that earlier. I was like, cause how all these people talk about how like pretty she was whenever I was like, what if it was a girl that was like jealous of her? Well, they're, they, they say that there's a lot of, um, different reports, um, connect her to the lesbian community too, that, 
she wasn't particularly just into men. She was also into women too. That's Which they, it's so funny because though um, one of the reasons they say that she was cut in half, which is so gross, is because um, is it was not to be brutal, and they did it because it would be easier to manage her body, transport her. Yeah, how yeah. sick is that? It's gross. I just I can't. And I I want to say there was something like six sixty different confessions. Um, the woman though that can the woman that confessed though um she was taken rather seriously enough that she was in several newspapers and she had brutally beat up her cousin or something who ended up in the hospital and stuff too. No, I know. It's so weird. We live in such a bubble that you start reading this and you have to sort of, again, and I do this all the time, disassociate yourself to not realize that it's a real person or that it's a real body that you're looking at the pictures for. And, um, then you like come across stories like that, like this woman who claims that she, she murdered her and, and like she really did beat up her, like people live lives that we don't understand. The police records of the Black Dahlia case are available online if you request them. The file contains the pictures found in Elizabeth's trunk and many of the hand type reports made by the original detectives. Unfortunately, a large portion of the file is withheld. I received an email that read in part, the complete set of records, 56 pages in total, are attached. This set of records are the only public records available for this case. The remainder of the case files remain investigatory, are exempt from public record. An email I sent to the captain of the Los Angeles Police Department, head of robbery and homicide, Division William Hayes, received this response to my question. Is there currently a detective assigned to the Black Dahlia murder case? He wrote back, yes, that is correct. The Black Dahlia case is considered a cold case with an open investigation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haunting History Podcast. We love hearing from you, so please be sure to like, follow, and comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Haunting History Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to all your favorites. Also, you can join our Patreon site for exclusive content, upcoming contests, and information only available to our Patreon members. Visit our website at huntinghistorypodcast.com for more information on each episode and links to our Patreon page and all the social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Kat, and remember, the living are far scarier than any ghost.